Welcome to the Electric Monks Podcast. Episode 5. Pugilism and the Third Autistic Cuckoo. Hello there, and welcome to the fifth edition of the Electric Monks podcast. I'm Ed, and I'm here with my co-host... Nemo. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> or, or good afternoon, or good evening, or, or good night, if it's like 3am when you're listening to this. My dad told me he started listening to this. Uh, he went to China recently, and he was listening to this on the plane, <laughs> which is kind of nice. So. so we've pretty much done all the... All the books that are written by Douglas Adams. So if we were just a book podcast, we would stop now. But uh, we're not. We're a um, everything Dirk Gently kind of podcast. So that means... We, we are more than just the books. Yeah. So that means we go into the uh, the adaptations. We sort of go into the, the post-Douglas world, if you will. So, so we're doing the radio series, the BBC4 radio series, which was an adaptation of the two novels. Uh, it's often seen as one of the more the the most faithful adaptation, I think. Although there are a few changes which we'll get into a bit later. So it's uh, obviously holistic. Dirk Gently's Detective Agency, which was series in two thousand seven, and Long Without Two Time of the Soul, which came out in two thousand eight, and is done by uh, Above the Title Productions, which people may recognise from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio series. The third, fourth, and fifth ones were done by Above the Title and directed by. Dirk Maggs also directed uh, these two series. Uh, in case anybody's wondering who this Dirk Maggs guy is, uh, before Douglas died, Dirk Maggs was actually the guy that Douglas uh, thought would be the, the best guy to do radio adaptations of the later Hitchhiker novels. Um, you know, the fans had been asking for years, are you going to do more, you know, continue the radio series, either as its own thing or adapting the books back into the radio series? And Douglas said, as far as I'm aware and recall, had pretty much expressed the view of he likes the idea of doing that, but recognises his own limitations of deadlines and writing and other priorities and felt that he'd never get around to it. Uh, but you know, he effectively blessed Dirk Maggs as the guy that you know, was the best guy to do that job. So when it was announced, new Hitchhiker radio series and held my Dirk Maggs, the fandom kind of went, Dirk Maggs, he was, he's clearly the guy. Uh, and for him to continue that with Dirk Gently has felt very appropriate and suitable. One of the interesting things is there was originally meant to be a third Dirk Gently radio series based on the unfinished novel The Salmon of Doubt, which we talked about last time. It was it was supposed to come out in 2009, and there was there was sort of a plan for it, and it was going to be written actually by Kim Fuller, who is most well known for writing a really bad uh, late 90s film about the Spice Girls called Spice World, which I think was nominated for Razzie for like worst screenplay or something like that. It wouldn't surprise me. To, to put a more positive spin, he's also worked on a lot of classic comedy shows like from the 80s, such as Not the Nine O'Clock News and Spitting Image, which were like uh, really big shows back in the day and very successful. So so it so can't be all bad, is what I'm saying. I think I think the Wikipedia entry that just says, oh, it was going to be written by Spice World writer Kim Fuller, and that sort of gives us somewhat negative connotations as to, oh, well, it's just as well it didn't get made there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I couldn't find very much about what the actual script 
um, was about in terms of because obviously Doug Snow finished the book, so and as we mentioned, the radio series already had a couple of changes from the books. They really could have done a lot of different things with this seminar adaptation, but all I know about Fuller's script from is uh, from a sentence in um, Jem Roberts' book, The Fruit, which I've referred to before on this podcast. It's sort of like <laughs> the Bible at the moment for me, and he he mentions that I'm. Not, I assume he's got some source for it somewhere because um, he's got access to all the sort of archive materials. He must have found the script lying around somewhere. But um, he said that the script involved Dirk ending up at a party in Islington with a, a bloke named Phil who had a parrot cage on his shoulder. Not a parrot on his shoulder, but a cage. So I assume the cage is like empty. So uh, that, that sounded interesting. That, that reminds that, me a little that, bit of like, isn't there a bit in Hitchhiker's where Arthur goes to? I'm, I might be getting mixed up with the movie. The movie definitely has him going to a party in Islington because that's where he meets uh, Trillian, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so so Zaphod was Phil was named Phil at that party, and in at oh, least yes. one adaptation, the explanation for the second head, how he hid the second head at the party, was that the second head was in a parrot cage on his shoulder, oh. and so the second head was just squawking like a parrot. So you know, so that was that was his. His disguise at the party was that he was a pirate with a parrot on his shoulder, but the parrot was in a parrot cage because, you know, zany humor, why not? Um, and possibly in, in, and I honestly can't remember which version of Hitchhikers had that. Um, it might have even been that at one point there was a reveal that he you know, pulled the, the cloth off the parrot cage and, you know, instead of a parrot it in there. It makes sense if it was a radio a series that did that because, of course, yeah, similar uh, people yeah, like and, it. Yeah, and, and it wasn't in the books or the TV or the radio series. So I have a feeling it might have been a from one of the behind the scenes notes somewhere of uh, know, okay. somebody asked, yeah, how did Zaphod pick up Trillion at a party if he's got two heads? Like that's a bit of a giveaway, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was like, well, you know, this is the explanation. He was dressed as a pirate and he had you know, the second head was pretending to be a parrot and there was a parrot cage and so to hide the shape and yeah, whatever. I mean it works every time. <laughs> it, absolutely. So so when I read when I read that the uh, the Dirk ends up in a party in Islington with a man named Phil who had a parakeet on his shoulder. I read that as like, yes, that's that's a absolute reference to Zaphod and the party that Trillian and Arthur were at. Yeah, I had forgotten that Zaphod went under the pseudonym of Phil <laughs> at certain points. But, uh, yeah, it, it does seem to fit in with what happens, especially in the second series on Long Dark Tea Time. They were they sort of ramped up the amount of uh, Hitchhiker's references that popped up here and there. They. They did. It was quite impressive. Uh, another thing about this is that uh, I've read an interview from 2009. There was, I think, Hitchcock in 2009, where they not only announced Owen Colfer's book, but they also announced that that was when they were doing the TV series, which was just after this radio series. And uh, Ed Victor, who was Douglas's eight, uh, late great agent, was asked about the radio series, the third radio series being cancelled, and he said that uh, there wasn't really enough of Douglas in the project to make it worthwhile. That obviously, they'd read through the script and decided that oh, the first two series, it was close enough because the, the whole narrative framework was still based largely on the original novels, whereas this, obviously, they had to fabricate a bit more stuff, especially they would have had to make up an entire ending or last quarter of the book, or at least a quarter. It doesn't it depends how long they want the series to go on for. I felt that with with the, both of these radio series, that the obviously the overall plot was still there. Some of the plot elements were shuffled around forwards and backwards in time, or which characters 
characters were interacting with which parts of the plot that was tweaked every time. There were a few characters that got a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, screen time is the wrong word. Uh, there were a few characters that got a lot more time in the story compared to the novel. Yeah, but it was done in a way that allowed it to that allowed the story to be told in the context of a radio series. Um, so all of that, none of that felt like it was inappropriate for honouring Douglas's original story in his original words. It was a reasonable way of tweaking things to suit radio. Uh, but yeah, creating a brand new story from the fragments that Douglas wrote in, in Salmon of Doubt, even even assuming there's more that behind the scenes uh, we haven't seen or haven't heard of, it's, there's still not much. Hmm. Uh, so creating a new story to that, I, I can see where Ed Victor would be coming from. On the other hand, it does strike me as curious that that description that there's not enough of Douglas's work at Douglas's voice in there compared to what you know the Max Landis TV series which we'll get to in a few podcasts of time but you know, that's uh, even, even further so the final series never really got into production in the end I'm not entirely sure it was because the TV series sort of ended production in t- 2009 and eventually got the first episode in 2010 which of course we'll talk about next on the bbc4 tv series but um it's interesting that at the same time dirk mags left above the title productions to form his own company which was sort of a tribute to douglas in a way which was uh, perfectly normal productions let's talk about the first um radio series in 2007 and it, it's interesting actually in terms of because obviously it came out 12 years ago now but um well, okay, probably more like 11 and a bit years if you're going to be technical, but... Um, <laughs> uh, more than a decade. It's still, especially compared to the book, it still feels the technology that's in there that they use doesn't feel um, too far removed from what we have now. At least, oh, but maybe that's because I sort of grew up during this period. I, did, I don't think I listened to it right when it came out, but a few years later. I guess we should talk about the uh, cast, because there's a, there's a very good... Uh, a lot of well-known people in the cast. We have Harry Enfield, the comedian, as uh, as Dirk Gently. Well, he's well-known for his sort of... He had this sort of sketch comedy show, I think, Harry and Paul's. I think from about the late 90s all the way through the 2000s, he had this very... A few different kind of long-running uh, sketch comedy shows, which he was well-known for. I was reading some of the notes about the recording sessions, and Harry Enfield originally went for a much sort of wispier comic kind of voice for Dirk and then they sort of realize oh but when we get to like a a more serious scene this isn't really going to work so maybe actually Harry should do it in your uh, more your your ordinary voice because that's what people aren't expecting from your sort of comedy shows and stuff so I thought it was interesting how they came to that in fact they had to re-record a lot of scenes between Harry Enfield and Olivia (laughs) Coleman who plays Janice Pierce his secretary a lot um what do, what do you think of Harry Enfield's performance? That that would be interesting. So so speaking from the other side of the planet, I'm not familiar with Harry Enfield. You know, they, uh, in terms of, and that's actually true for a lot of these names. I read through read through the cast list, and there's a few names that I recognise, but by and large, they, you know, I'd have to look up almost all of them. You know, Philip Pope I recognise from previous Hitchhiker credits, Billy Boyd. He rings a bell. Is wasn't he in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, he played Mary, Pippin. Mario Pippin. In Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah, Pippin, the Scottish yeah. one. Um, much beyond that, uh, yeah, I think that's about it for who I instantly recognise by name. Uh, Toby Longworth, 
as a name, I think, rang a bell from Hitchhikers, but I might be conflating that with having heard Dirk Gently credits on in radio series for the last couple of days, uh, <laughs> listening through the news. So I, I'm, I'm uh, starting to get confused with all that. Uh, but, but back to Harry Enfield, uh, I really appreciated the way that uh, his voice acting for that, he, he did feel normal, but I also felt like, uh, and I don't know if this is just, if it was a deliberate thing or just my own perception, but it felt like he was very much going for a Douglas Adams voice. Uh, yeah, and maybe that's, I, I definitely got that. Uh, yeah, I listened to something else that was read by Douglas Adams recently, one of, one of the books. Um, and so I kind of had that recent familiarity uh, with his voice. And so listening to Harry Enfield as Dirk Gently, it was like, yeah, that's just you know, a, a few small voice mannerisms and, and voice uh, verbal tics even just felt like they were Douglas Adams ones. And I, I don't know if that was deliberate or if that was that they grew up in the same sort of area and have effectively the same accent, but... Uh, I thought that was neat. Uh, in in general, I think he did the character well. There was a sense of uh, holisticness about him. He was you know, he he had that you know, investigating, but you know, that frustration that Dirk has when he doesn't understand how things are going, even you know, despite this background faith that everything is connected and that it will all you know, reveal itself in all its interconnected glory at some point. Uh, but 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 he has that frustration when he knows that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, and you know, and he's being beat up by eagles or whatever. I think Harry Enfield was born according uh, to whatever he was born in Horsham in Sussex, and he went to um, he was educated in uh, Pulborough in in Dorset, and sort of he went to York, University of York, so he went a bit more up north, and he also in his early life he apparently squatted in Hackney, and worked for a while as a milkman before he became sort of a <laughs> comedy actor. And, uh, yeah, it was Saturday Live in Channel 4 that he first came to uh, working with Paul Whitehouse, who was the Paul in the Harry and Paul sketch show that came later. Oh, and interesting, I talked about uh, Kim Fuller working on Spitting Image, and Harry Enfield also did a lot of the voices because Spitting Image was a political satire show where they had puppets of all these political figures and sort of ripped the piss out of them. Again, a sort of thing that they used to make fun of Thatcher, and Harry Enfield was uh, one of the voices yeah, I, in that I, as well. I think I've seen clips from that, so uh, yeah. I'd recognise it to see it, but uh, but I didn't grow up with it. Uh, moving on. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. I think Harry, important, because a lot. one of the things we keep talking about in the novels was whether Dirk is, um, because we initially sort of picked up on the fact that he's, uh, Douglas based him quite largely on his friend Michael Bywater, and then as the novels went on, we sort of felt... Uh, there were more and more Douglas mannerisms that sort of got added to the character, and then in, in then there was of course the Southbank show adaptation where Michael Bywater did play him, and this feels different enough to that. I think you can sort of see where maybe, especially if you, I think especially if you play that scene uh, that's in the Southbank show and compare that to the one in this radio adaptation, you can tell. Uh, Harry Enfield maybe was sort of a little bit inspired by that, but he goes in a slightly different sort of direction with his uh, with his performance. I, th- I think I think the important thing with both characters, there's still lot, interpretations are is there's still plenty of uh, warmth to them, and they're still both quite likable. Although we obviously don't see enough of the Michael Bywater version to really get a bigger picture, but we sort of get the sense that although they're sort of con men 
uh, in a sense, and as they're trying to steal old, old swindle old ladies out of their <laughs> money, there's, there's still that kind of um, a wittiness and a charm to them that sort of carries them through. That sort of yeah. means we don't sort of think, oh, this guy's a bit of a scumbag. Richard, you better stay away from him. It would be interesting to get the multiple versions of that scene. You know, the, the scene that was filmed for the South Bank show, you know, uh, the introduction to Dirk Gently. You know, yeah, I, I, I think it's. I think the uh, Douglas Adams reading of the books, the uh, South Bank show filming of that scene, almost, almost literally as it was written, and the radio series adaptation of that scene, which is from memory fairly close. Uh, I think that would make an interesting comparison, just to, to hear, if nothing else, the the voice treatment of uh, Harry Enfield's portrayal compared to. Yeah, a lot of people I've talked to um, seem to think that of the, especially people who are book purists, seem to think that uh, Harry Enfield is the best Dirk Gently that we've ever had. I, I think there's a fair case for that. I definitely see um, the appeal yes. in his as, performance. As, as, yeah, yeah. Um, I I think that's very much there is that it's the same Dirk that was the Dirk in the books, whereas both TV adaptations have gone through a, a different stories and. And as part of that, different versions of Dirk, effectively. Anyway, we should talk about the rest of the cast, because uh, like we said, Billy Boyd plays Richard McNuff, and he was in Lord of the Rings. He played Peregrine Took, a.k.a. Uh, Pippin, who's the in the, I think in Fellowship of the Ring, he's the one who ends up falling down the well and alerting all the goblins to their presence. So that's on the, I think that's the most memorable thing that he does. And, uh, Ian McKellen, Gandalf, basically, chastises him and calls him a fool of a took or something like that. Yeah, um, um, So, B-Boyd, obviously, interesting that there's like, um, there was some discussion about whether he was going to put on an English accent for the role and I think initially his agent, uh, talking to Dirk Maggs' sort of uh, diary, production diary for the first series, he said initially his agent sort of told Billy Matt, you'll have to do an English accent because, you know, this is what Douglas's character was originally like, who sort of went to Cambridge, and but then D- I think Dirk Maggs was actually intervened himself and and said, hey, you know, why can't a Scottish guy um go to go to Cambridge and be a computer program or whatever? It's sort of it, it still sort of makes sense for the character. Absolutely, and his name and his name's Macduff. So yeah, exactly. That was the other thing that he picked <laughs> up on as well. So uh, so in the end, um, uh, he did do it in his native accent, and again. I actually think Billy Boyd does maybe a really good job in this. He sort of appears again in the second series. We'll come back to that. It's a big deviation from the book. But um, uh, I think he he has to do a lot of different stuff in here. So there's like a scene where there's like the hypnotism scene where he has to put on his sort of hypnotizing voice and sort of, I especially love it when he's um, doing, when he's sort of recounting stuff that Reg says to him and sort of out of nowhere, he says like, tell me about your work, dear boy. <laughs> and it sort of becomes sort of really weird as <laughs> sort of him saying it because obviously then it goes into a flashback. And then uh, there's other stuff like I think there's the scene in the phone brief where he pretends to be, he's standing outside, uh, is it like an Italian restaurant and he pretends to be Italian and it pretends to have an argument over the phone. Uh, I agree, like, Chris, right? Yes. Yeah, there's a Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think both Harry Enfield and Billy Boyd do a great job. And the other person is uh, Olivia Coleman, who another um, comic actress. Uh, well, I think at the time she was best known for co-starring in uh, David Mitchell and Robert Webb sketch shows, so especially 
Peep Show, she plays a major character in that. Uh, for quite early, yeah, she's like um, David Mitchell's character's uh, what I think initially love interest, and then eventually wife, and then they have a very messy kind of breakup and a child and stuff like that. And uh, and then there was there was also a sketch comedy show I think called That Mitchell and Web Look, where she starred in a lot of different sketches there. And uh, so she was just so she was sort of very closely aligned to that. And I think I read somewhere that she, her agent basically said, um, oh, you need to, because uh, you're going to get typecast if you keep doing these, so you need to do different things. And this was about the same time that this uh, Dirt Gently series came out. And I think she is very well cast. And, and she's also a pretty good uh, dramatic actress, as it's turned out in the years since, because she she was in uh, Broadchurch with David Tennant. She was sort of the... Um, not the psychic, they were both sort of the main characters in that. And uh, that was a very kind of dreary uh, Chris Tribunal show that he did before uh, doc- he became showrunner of Doctor Who. And then Olivia Coleman is sort of in the news at the moment because she's up for an Oscar for her performance in The Favourite, which I actually saw the the other day, actually. And she was very good. She plays uh, Queen Anne in that. And there's also a lesbian love triangle in that movie. But anyway, um, in, the, in this, um, obviously, Janice the character is sort of a bit part role in the novel, even though the bits that she is in, in the office are actually quite good. And there's that great running gag of threatening to storm out all the time, but always coming back in the hope that maybe Dirk will eventually get his shit together and pay her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he never does. And um, in this, they expand the role. Um, they, because there's a scene where Dirk, and Macduff go to the scene of the crime to, so Dirk can find out more clues and Janice goes along too and they use Janice as a sort of way of yeah, Macduff can sort of talk to her to find out a bit more about Dirk and I think D- Dirk and Janice have a lot more back and forth, it sort of becomes kind of the main I think staple of the season I think all three of them have a really good chemistry with each other which definitely shows in even in the production director, it sounds like they were sort of recording it together. Whereas some of these sort of radio shows, you can tell they've recorded it separately in terms of like, uh, oh, we do it one actor at a time doing that one, then we get the next guy in. Whereas this one, it sounds, even in the sort of trailers, you can see they're recording scenes together, although not the whole thing continuously, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've heard that it's a difference uh, in a general sense between the US and the UK in the way that uh, voice recording for. Uh, movies, animated movies, and radio series and whatnot. Uh, radio plays like this are done. That in the US they get each actor in individually, record the lines. That's it. They're done. Um, everybody's kind of separate from everybody else. And in the UK, it's, they treat it more like it's a play and get everybody in on the same day. They interact with each other. They're literally recording the lines. You know, maybe in the same studio. You know, so that you get that uh, chemistry and, and playing off each other and being able to play off different performances of uh of the actors of the, uh, at the time of recording and um did you have any thoughts on the olivia consequence or just performance of the three leads as a whole um i thought it was i thought the way that they expanded uh that the writing expanded her role to fit her into the story better was really good um it helped with the exposition and the the transition to radio where you need your know, a, a voice to say things and describe things and um because she had such a small role in the books, they were able to expand her out you know, to do a lot of that work quite well. Um, yeah. But in, t- in, terms of, in terms of her actual performance, um, yeah, I thought it was great. 
Yeah, it was good because they didn't make her feel like a necessary character. I think later on when Dirk and Macduff go back to Cambridge for the climax, they involve her with the um, Gordon Way plot. That So Gordon Way goes into Dirk's office to make that fateful, important phone, final phone call to Susan. And he basically breaks through and starts uh, communicating with um, Janice and basically getting her to help him, which is, which is good. And that definitely helps in terms of, again, a radio form because otherwise you just have Gordon kind of talking to himself as a ghost or yeah. going over the rest of the cast very quickly, obviously not to discount them or any of them, but I think they're most of them are sort of uh, not quite a, as big players. So uh, Felicity Montague as uh, Susan, uh, she was fine. I thought nothing uh, too big. She gets a couple of good, good lines with Richard, I think. And I really like the way, um, they recount, they start the Richard story just after the Coleridge, and then he sort of recounts it to Susan initially uh, to sort of, oh, you wouldn't have liked it, you know, and this is why. And then yeah. halfway through, Susan gets bored and is like, you're right, I really don't, I'm, it sounds really bloody boring. <laughs> <laughs> and then she just leaves. And then he recounts the rest under hypnotism to Dirk and Janice. And Michael Fenton Stevens as Michael Winton Weeks, that just feels to say i feel like he got it from he could have got the role just from his name alone <laughs> I, I i did kind of wonder i was like yeah that that feels almost too perfect yeah but he i thought he was very good in terms of this um because he had to play again it's sort of like uh, Macduff because he has to play winton weeks uh when as, as you know michael wednesday weeks is just the, uh, that's his nickname obviously but he as just the sort of prophetic and quite troubled but they add a lot to his sort of troubles in terms of he's actually getting a professional help in this whereas in the novel he isn't yeah. and uh then of course there's a scene where he gets fully possessed a bit later on and he has to shift into the um embodying this much kind of this ancient alien that's just sort of lost and alone and obviously sort of a quite similar personality to Wenton Weeks already but sort of amplified a little bit and i think he when they're sort of trying to build up a, a sense of dread about what uh the um Cyaxian ghost is going to do in the later stages of the book he is very good in those like especially the they do the train scene where he's sort of explaining things to the uh, other passengers on the train and that's actually still it's quite chilling in the book and it's still chilling here i think from what i remember yeah, it, it works well. You know, they, I mean, there were big parts of whoever the other characters in the train were that you know, were commenting about, you know, who is that creepy guy? And they said, oh, he's telling me this story and I you know, didn't understand it. And you have this train passenger who's clearly actually freaked out by the whole experience. Uh, who else? Toby Longworth as the electric monk. Uh, I looked in the trailer and they saw it's quite funny because they have um, Jim Carter who plays Jilks. I think Jim Carter does a very good job as well. And they have uh, him at the table, and they have a, a speaker with a hoodie on. And Toby Longworth is elsewhere, so speaking into a microphone, so they can get that kind of electronic noise to his voice. And uh, yeah, I think they they expand the monk's role a fair bit in this. I think mainly for purposes of comedy. There's a scene where one of the police constables, on the more incon in incompetent ones, Constable Luke, who's I think a new character put in this, or he might have been in the book, but he was again another bit part player. Um, in the third part, uh, he they, he runs into the monk, and the monk explains 
they give the sort of because you remember in the very opening of the book douglas saddam sort of explains what an electric monk is and they they turn that into a cheery kind of infomercial that the monk sort of plays out to a constable loop I thought I thought that was cute, and, and one of the good examples of being able to reuse Douglas's words. That was just the other part of the novel, not not any any character's voice, and turn it into a character's voice. I, I, there were a few times where that kind of felt a bit awkward. That suddenly, you know, you'd have a character that is suddenly describing things in a very Douglasy way, in the way that you know, Douglas would sometimes, but not quite, almost exactly that kind of a thing. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and you'd have characters that do that and you'd be like yeah that's that's lifted straight from a author description not from a character description but it's been inserted in and it has the right sense of it but yeah at the same time and and it's necessary for radio to, that it has to there isn't an a uh, everything that comes through has to come from a character's voice so it, that made sense for it to happen but uh the the electric monk uh promo i think was one of the better examples of that for sure yeah he uh i found it really funny when he also rides his horse into a fast food restaurant uh because he's hungry and he, the horse is hungry and he's sort of uh he's still got the gun that he used to kill uh the shotgun that he used to kill uh gordon and even though he's still still feeling a bit regretful about it, he goes if i'm hungry let's go to uh, i'm in need of nourishment or something rather that let's go to the this uh food outlet and i think it's implied to be mcdonald's he he rides in and holds. Um, he's going to shoot the milkshake machine if he doesn't get a um, yeah a happy meal. <laughs> and then there's an exchange with a homeless man, where the homeless man asks for change, and uh, the monk sort of doesn't understand what money is, and that, that leads to him getting um, finally arrested by the police and questioned by Jilks, which I think is probably one of the one of the better and more interesting sort of new bits in there. Like initially, the monks are sort of confesses to everything and then he's like uh, oh you know what i'm really struggling to believe in things and jilk sort of says yeah i saw you try to believe in the sort of holy uh coffee dispenser and so all these sorts of random uh equipment things in the uh in the police corridor and then the monk decides he's gonna start worshipping jilks <laughs> jilks doesn't take <laughs> too well at all and he's just yes. so done he's just so done with it all and i love that performance from jim carter he's a good sort of foil for someone like the monk who's this sort of eccentric relentlessly cheery character and he's this world weary and just got no patience for it anymore and his scenes with dirk are quite good as well the one with the monk stood out a little bit more to me in terms of like the again because it was an original scene that wasn't in the books it's almost obvious that there are going to be interactive scenes with Dirk and, and more of them than there were in the book and I think that's just the nature of it's almost a trope I guess of writing a private detective story is that you've got the private detective who's out there being paid by some client to solve a crime and you've got the Lestrade who, kind of character yeah, yeah exactly him. yes yeah so so he's uh he's the he's the Lestrade to uh to Sherlock as you say it's we've got Robert Duncan as Gourley again a quite sort of Tragic performance, similar to Fenton Stevens when he's playing the ghost. Except that I think they do a really good job of on the audio effect. Sort of the scene where Dirk goes to the highway and sort of, sort of a little bit like a kind of tracker. He sort of pieces together somehow 
I guess, what happened to uh, using his sort of, I guess it's somehow tied into his sort of psychic slash holistic abilities. He's able to sort yeah. of tell the others what what um, what happened to Gordon Way after he died, essentially. That that was an interesting expansion on what uh, on Dirk's uh, normally very understated psychic abilities. That you're know, understated to the point that uh, we've had discussions before about is he actually psychic or you know is it is it the universe playing silly buggers with him? And indeed, at what point is it that distinction irrelevant? Um, and and you know, to make for them to make really overtly obvious yeah dirk psychic he might not believe in himself but for the purpose of the story and being able to relate these scenes we have to go with dirk is psychic and we can you know they, they're able to make the scenes on that basis the voice treatment of gordon as a ghost i found a little bit overdone to be honest i thought it was a good the way that it was done kind of that warbly underwaterish yeah. sound uh, i thought it was a good idea I just a few times it all, it kind of took me out of the listening and enjoyment of the story because i would was noticing the voice treatment and that was distracting. Um, but that's, that's my only criticism there. The, the idea was good, just uh, I think they ramped it up to 11. Yeah, fair enough. And we get a phone call from Gordon Way to Dirk and he tells Dirk to um, make sure Macduff is still working on... Uh, Anthem 2? Anth- uh, yeah, Anthem. I've written Fathom here, but that's the name of Winter Week's magazine. I always get those two mixed yeah. up. Uh, the change here is that Dirk is employed by Gordon to basically keep an eye and spy on Richard Macduff. That was one of the things that I liked because in the novel, Dirk is just looking over the London skyline and happens to see this movement, and it's never explained why he's, you know, uh, why he's looking like he's just looking across the skyline to see what he can find. It's, it's sort um, of a peeping Tom kind of thing is the implication. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, curiosity about the world and, and then yeah. is able to, you know, and, and it makes it for a neat coincidence that you know, he identifies the building and um, from that is able to get the phone number. That's not how phone books work in my world, but um, <laughs> I was able to accept that. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, UK phone directories work different. Um, but yeah, and, and the fact that it then turned out to be uh, Rich McDuff and you know, they'd gone to university together and you know, that added to the holisticness of the whole scene. Uh, but it it did just create that sense of that part of why that occurred just didn't work. And uh, I felt like the producers of you know, Dirk Mags may have had that same question. of like, we really need to, for Dirk to have a motivation to be tracking Richard on, you know, to be to be calling him and, uh, and get that kickstarted. So I, I enjoyed that. And I guess it makes a bit more sense why you would have Susan's phone number if you works for Gordon. You're right, it does give Dirk a reason to get involved in the narrative a bit earlier. And also sort of means they can do the scene where Janice is introduced as well, much earlier, where she's yeah. sort of with him on the rooftops. And sort of they're both sort of looking at, and that that works quite well, I think, to sort of establish that dynamic between them. Uh but there's a scene at the end of part one, which I, I feel like it's sort of created maybe slightly unintentional change because uh dirk remarks to richard oh you look awfully relaxed and this is from the novel you look awfully relaxed for a man in your position and uh, richard asks dirk whether oh has gordon got to you too and yeah. in the book of course he hadn't this was more of richard just sort of being paranoid but here he has actually richard sort of unintentionally stumbled upon although dirk doesn't you know reveal it because it's not really relevant to the sort of line of uh, 
thought that Dirk wants Richard to go on in terms of building up that kind of paranoia. He wants him to trust Dirk, so he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, but he just never tells him that. That it's sort of if I can imagine if you were a first-time listener and you heard that, and you sort of Richard's like, "Oh, he hasn't got to you too," and it's like, "Oh, but he has got to him. He has got to you. Maybe you shouldn't trust him, Richard. Maybe." Yeah, I, I could imagine someone who's listening for the first time, sort of maybe being a little bit less willing to trust. I mean, already there are a couple of reasons not to trust Dirk that are given in the first part, but uh, it's just a, just an extra one, and I, 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 that makes it more interesting in my opinion. Although I think um, the fact that Dirk does go on to help Macduff and sort of we see that uh, there is a method to his madness that sort of softens us up to him even more. I think. A couple of things in the climax. It's, uh, I think it's during part five. They sort of build up to the climax a bit. Uh, when Dirk and Macduff meet Ridge in Cambridge uh, during part five, Ridge states that most of the 14th century is pretty grim. And when Dirk picks up on this, Ridge claims that he meant the 1980s, whereas the book was obviously written in the 1980s. So I think uh, Ridge just says an earlier decade is the excuse. And I think Dirk's response to that is, "Oh, you know, big hair, shoulder pads, flares. Well, not you at all." Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is a good kind of a, it's a good kind of riff on that line to still make make it still sort of fit in context. Um, one of the things production notes was that Billy Boyd sort of pointed out this uh, logical inconsistency that was sort of wrecking his brain a bit because Dirk says of George III's questions, uh, he's talking about the time machine. I think it says it explains what the missing third question was, or rather, and this is the significant point, explains what the missing first question was which implies that there may have been four questions. <laughs> Naturality, there are only three. And I think uh, Dirk Maggs describes it as, oh, Douglas did a little sort of logical double shuffle or something like that. It's a bit confusing. And so the final scene, they make it a bit more straightforward and simple because already, especially, if, I think they said, oh, if you're sort of just tuning in for this part, it's confusing enough at this point. <laughs> we don't need to yeah. give suggest there was another question that George referred us. I think we should segue to a long dark tea time now. One of the things that set up here, which I, which I found actually really interesting, was they change uh, Macduff's backstory a bit because yeah. he they make it because we hear hot potato played on Macduff's car. I think in the first part, which is sort of comes across as just an Easter egg, but then it turns out he's the ex keyboardist of Pugilism and the Third Autistic Cuckoo, which is the band that writes Hot Potato. That doesn't play a big part in the first series, but in the second, yeah. No. Yeah, but but it gets mentioned in the first series, which leads you know, leads in good you know, and in the first series, um, you know, you do find if you're familiar with the novel of uh of, with the second novel, you find yourself going, Well wait, Hot Potato is plot point in the second novel, so how come that's a Richard thing? Uh, it, I think it actually works well for Richard as a character because clearly, with his uh, creation of Anthem as software, that he's interested in uh, in music. Yeah, they uh, set that or, up, or at least have some background with music. So, work that he's yeah. doing for Way Forward with the bar charts that sing and stuff like that. Or yeah, that's right. And, yeah, and and in and in Douglas's original, you know, he's he's just a computer geek who's into music because, yeah. You know, what computer geek isn't. Yeah, and also there's, there's <laughs> also the uh, music that's in the ship that he really likes that Reg uh, is yeah. able to keep very much becomes back. Richard isn't shown as having any musical interest or experience in the novels that's not directly involved with Anthem or with um, with technology you know, going forward from the point from the you know, the point that which we're introduced to him. 
Um, so in the radio series, they've given him a background that's musical. Uh, so I think that that enhances that uh, that fleshes out his character really well, um, as well as obviously linking you know, from the first novel to the second. And when you're writing holistic stories, having extra little links like that is just a bonus. There's a scene in the first uh, in uh, the Detective Agency where there's a flashback to Richard in the band and sort of the moment where they have creative differences and split and actually in that they're playing Hot Potato which is their sort of yes. one hit song and um, it's actually Billy Boyd because he's actually a musician he's actually playing the uh, keyboard in those parts as Richard which oh, I think is really cool and also I, I didn't mention but the uh, and beginning ending announcements by John Marsh is the he's the same guy who did all of the Hitchhikers radio series, even the ones when Douglas was doing it. Apart from the very first episode when someone else did it, but uh, John Marsh that's that's really cool that they sort of create a, a sense of continuity between the series, and that sort of continues with various different Hitchhikers references uh, in uh, Long Dark Tea Time. Um, well, unfortunately, Nemo and I have gone into so much detail and spent so long talking about the first series that we've run out of time. But don't panic, because we'll be continuing our discussion with our thoughts on the second series, an adaptation of The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, in next time's podcast. For now, feel free to contact us on our website, dirtgentlypodcast.wordpress.com, or on Twitter where I am at Edward J. Hunter, and Nemo is at subether with an underscore underneath and no E in ether. Until next time, see you around.